are very honored uh, today to have Colonel Andy Milburn here. He is a former commander of the Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force. Um, he is also an author of the book, When the Tempest Gathers. And, um, yeah, a retired colonel, uh, infantry marine. So I don't want to just, I just teeing it up for you, but if for all of, for everyone who has, uh, who doesn't know you, hasn't read your book, um, could you just tell us a little bit about your time in the Marine Corps, how your, 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 your journey started a little bit different than other little Marines. little unusual well first yeah. of all thanks very much fellas it, it's great being here uh andrew nick and vic and uh really uh really appreciate the invitation and so yeah with, without without making this uh laborious long story uh yes indeed you know, it, it, it's slightly unusual start I, I am as you can probably tell from my accent from the uk originally i i immigrated to this country uh I, via a rather an unusual conduit in that I came through Paris Island instead of Ellis Island, um, <laughs> which is definitely uh, definitely an experience. Paris Island was my first introduction to the United States. That is not an exaggeration. Um, and it was, a, uh, it was a very abrupt culture shock, let me put it that way. Um, but yeah, to, just to, to stay, take a step backwards, I brought up in the UK, uh, had plans to join the British Army, and they were curtailed abruptly when I broke my leg playing rugby at college. I was a crappy rugby player, unlike Woody. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'd score points for saying that. Uh, and, uh, and so was rejected by the British Army, ended up, enlisting in the U.S. Marine Corps after law school. Uh, I should backtrack and say I had a U.S. passport. I was a dual national. Uh, it was in, the, in, uh, in the U.K., there was a Marine recruiter back in the 80s because a lot of the U.S. high schools. I ran into him and, to cut a long story short, signed a contract. Uh, my parents were less than ecstatic. Remember, I was just in my final year of law school at the time, just about finishing off. I wrung him dry, though. Uh, I really did, you know, guaranteed PFC out of boot camp, guaranteed infantry. That's a, uh, <laughs> nice. yeah, yeah he's, I'm sure he's still sweating it. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I always had plans to go back and practice law in the UK. My plan originally was to go into the Marines for four years and then go back. I had a place at, at uh, what we call um, the uh, pupillage uh, there, it, so it's, they were going. They were going to keep it open for five years. So I figured out four-year enlistment, work out well. I would return. Uh, Thirty-one years later, obviously, it, yeah. it didn't didn't quite work out that way. I just started to realize I was probably a better marine than I would be a lawyer. That's a <laughs> nice. very very low bar. Well, given uh, your yeah. uh, given your body of work, I think that uh, you would have had to have been an exceptional attorney in order to uh, to meet what you've done in uniform. So thank you for sticking around, sir. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I, now bear in mind, I, I wrote the book, so that's just one. View of <laughs> yes. if someone Very else biased had, yeah, yeah, a little, maybe a little. But, you know, on that point, honestly, and, and I think uh, you guys hopefully will agree with it. If you don't, please don't say so on this podcast. But uh, in the book, you know, this isn't kind of a chest-thumping seal memoir of there I was, you know. Mm -hmm. and uh, it, it is, I have intended to be, absolutely honest and I had help from friends too on this you know the point was that in the Marine Corps we have a very I think a very healthy cynicism about self-publication self right you notice that 
I think that's good. I, I think a downside of it is that we don't get, we don't have a lot of writers. We may make fun of, for instance, the army uh, SF guys or SEALs who write more books. Um, but I think there's a downside of the fact that we do not. And, and for some reason, this reluctance to put our thoughts or our, our, our careers, our experiences into writing uh, has been relatively recent. It's it's um, it last two decades because you think about the flood of Vietnam. Mm, There's yeah. a lot of Marines mm. wrote about their experience in Vietnam, Korea, yeah, Second World War, but West, yeah. yeah, but not the same uh, from the last two decades. So anyway, you know, my point being, so if you're going to raise your head above the parapet and write about yourself, not it's you know, hopefully it's not it's not intended to be about myself, but it's a memoir after all, right? Mm-hmm. You have to be. You have to be scrupulously honest uh, because otherwise, you know, I mean, this is that personal feeling of distaste if you're not. <laughs> Absolutely. What I think, I think to your point, sir, is that in sort of like we were talking uh, before the interview started is, is that regardless of what medium or genre you're writing in, especially for nonfiction, you have to be a character and you have to be an accessible character. And so if your portrayal of your, uh, of your actions or your time – wherever it is, is overly exceptional. Even if people believe you, they're not going to be able to relate. Yeah, 100%. And the, you know, there's, there's another part to this too. So uh, in the first couple of, you know, we just talked about, you know, we were talking before the podcast about writing. Writing is rewriting, right? Mm-hmm. So, you, so in order to write well or, or to get to that point where not all Stephen King's writing 10,000 yeah. words a day after drinking a case of beer and doing cocaine, <laughs> right? Um, but, it, you know, to, in order to get that point, you've got to, you've got to shelve that fear of, of sucking. Yeah. And, and you oh, just yeah. pour your thoughts down on paper, right? And then you go back and edit, etc. But anyway, my point is that at some point in that stage, uh, I, I realized after I'd written the initial manuscript and I'd gone through it maybe once or twice, I started sharing it with friends, close friends. And their their perspective, coming back, I remember, very, gave me an insight that I had not had before because I thought I had been scrupulously honest in portraying my mistakes, uh, self-doubt. You know, some of, the, some of the tough things about, for instance, being in command, even at platoon level, you know, we always say command is lonely, but it is hellaciously lonely sometimes, especially, mm-hmm. you know, it's all very well when things are running smoothly, but when things start going wrong or you're losing people or – or things, you know, things can be, things can be almost, almost so chaotic uh, that that you are, you know, you're not sure whether you're up or down. But you are the guy that everyone's looking at to mm-hmm. ensure that you're going in one direction. You're not sure if you are that guy. Sometimes anyone who says that they've never been in that position uh, is probably just yeah, <laughs> lying yeah, or, yeah, or incredible. No introspection. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but. Um, you know, so so my point is, so I, I did want to get that out. I thought I had done it well. Uh, but I've also, frankly, had uh, a lot of problems, um, you, you know, dealing with uh, the aftermath of, of combat. Uh, mm. And then I had some personal tragedy. And that undoubtedly changed me. And so friends coming back and saying, unless you write about that, do you want this book just to be, you know, something that is – appears in the Marine Corps Associate, no offense guys, but you know, Marine Corps Association <laughs> bookstore, you know, back shelf for a little while. And, or, or do you want it to something that people can really relate to that, mm-hmm. that regardless, like a Lance Corporal can pick up 
or uh, and and enjoy a, as much as a you know maybe a policymaker or, or yeah. a senior officer. Um, and and if that's the case, and you've got to be honest about your own struggles and and. Um, you know whether or not it's a, whether or not you want to call it a story of resilience. I'm not sure it is a story of resilience because every day is still a battle, right? For yeah. for you know a Absolutely. lot of us. Yeah. Um, but it, but it is it is a story about hey, just keeping your head above water and and going day to day. Uh, and and that's an important story. I didn't realize how much an important aspect of that story it was until after the book came out, and then a lot of people who commented on it personally to me. Uh, told me that it was because um, it had it, it made them kind of feel better about their own experiences or their own reaction to their experiences, right? They, yeah. I am normal, right? Yeah, this, yeah. You know, uh, but but it's tough for us, especially as Marines, to write about that stuff because I tell you what, we can talk all we want about it's okay to have mental issues. I shouldn't even call it that, right? I, uh, to to have problems and. It, um, mental and, health and issues. Mental yeah. health issues. Yeah. So it's yeah, we feel empathy and all this, but the bottom line is we're Marines, and bottom line is you, we don't, we don't necessarily want a leader who's expressing that right, stuff, right. right? No, that's because a good point. you, you know, I mean, we we all know the way we talk. Though, hey, is this dude wacko or what? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. so I was just. It, it wasn't that I was concerned about people not wanting to follow me after that. I mean, hell, if people. I'm always surprised people wanted to, or, or if they didn't have a choice, right? <laughs> um, but it, but it was definitely that kind of ethos that I was, I was battling against, and so I, I did go back and I wrote about some very difficult things in there and my reaction to them, to you know, to include uh, uh, even before the personal tragedy, the, my my reaction after coming back, for instance, from my second deployment, which I thought was particularly difficult. And um, and and not perhaps dealing with it very well, and and probably drinking too much, and definitely drinking too much. Various, I so putting that in there um, is a little, I wouldn't say risky, but it's it's difficult. You know? It's vulnerable, but I think it adds uh, to use a, a you know hundred dollar word. It adds that verisimilitude to, like you said, it's it's this is a true memoir. It's not a there I was. Yeah, book. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, you know, you know the uh, human condition, right? Yeah, you, yeah. You're a uh, creative writer. Uh, you, what's what do they say about fiction? The the purpose of fiction is to <laughs> yeah, it's probably, it's not quite, yeah, yeah, but fill in the blank. But it's really to learn. You read fiction, right, to learn about the human condition. Yeah, it, it is an opportunity for you to learn about yeah to explore the themes of real life in a setting that isn't so grounded that's right yeah in reality yeah. so they you know i'm not this certainly wasn't fiction but <laughs> it's not this isn't me coming out with a lance armstrong type admission on your podcast um but it's the same kind of yeah. the same thing you you've got to you you've got to make your experiences uh relatable there's got to be an element of universality unless you are a hundred percent honest about the feelings that you have then you're not going to get there from here absolutely uh, well, well, sir, you know, one you're, not, the... you're not supposed to call me sir on this oh, podcast yeah, right. where I read the rules beforehand. <laughs> you told me all the words I could not say, which yep. were all swear words, right? Yes. Um, yeah. And, so and, but sir is another one. Four swear words yeah. and the S word. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, rule number one, don't swear. Rule number two, there is no rules. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, before we get into some of the specifics of your book, of the, your recent um, Gazette article, 
I did want to sort of unpack a little bit of your perspectives because you come from, like we said, you have such an, not just an unconventional path, but I think from your upbringing, you bring almost an outsider's perspective, if you will, onto how the Marine Corps functions, how it operates. Like you said, it was a huge culture shock for you, not just being in America, but being at Paris Island, South Carolina, and not just being at Paris Island, South Carolina as an American, but as a Marine recruit. So there's all of these nuances that even most Americans don't really have an understanding or a lens to look at the world through. And so you have, I feel like you have a very important perspective on the Marine Corps specifically because of all of these sort of crossroads that you yeah, I, I think, I mean, that's very kind of you to say it's important. I think it's certainly different. And I think, you know, one thing that the internet and globalization, all this other stuff has done has it has caused, to a certain extent, a convergence of cultures, right? So, and to include transatlantic cultures. So, uh, for instance, you know, I just gave a talk this morning to a group of British army officers and their terminology, uh, their mindset, their, their backgrounds, very similar to a group of, of U.S. Marine officers, but... 30-something years ago, that would not necessarily be the case. Mm. And the UK was a uh, very different culture from, from the US. And, you know, honestly, it still is. I, I, I mean, civilian cultures are, they, they are quite different. Um, and, and one perspective of that is, uh, is the fact that, I, you know, for me, going through a British private school in, in the UK, they're called public schools, but they're private. It's some, you know, it's a, some weird, <laughs> it's a weird coming, paradox dating back, the, from the public. Dating, dating back to the 14th <laughs> century when they were indeed public schools, but it doesn't matter. Um, and then to a British university um, doing philosophy. So you can imagine the 80s, it's a very, uh, you know, that's a very, um, uh, it's a left, left-wing, liberal in every sense of the word uh, environment. Um, but but also you know on the positive side, uh, an environment where creative thinking is mm. is encouraged, especially in a, something like uh, philosophy, and then going on to do to do law, which is much more structured, mm-hmm. but you're still having to to shape thoughts. But um, the the view then from the, the in the UK, you know, the U- U.S. military is regarded as, I, I mean, it's it was a very uh, <laughs> it's a, it, it was a very uh, foreign organization in every sense of the word mm. um and and you know how it is when you're outside an organization outside a culture you think of that cultural organization as being homogenous you know you think everyone's the same within it so there's very there was a very um uh, kind of stereotypical view of u.s marines which actually isn't that far off the mark by the way i realized <laughs> many years later um but and plus i did philosophy and you know how many there's not that many marine infantry officers or marine officers who have mm-hmm. done philosophy. There's something. There's not. It's not a natural crossover. Most philosophy students don't do philosophy with the prospect of joining right. the Marine Corps. <laughs> strangely enough, but um, yeah. So to go go from that environment and then Paris Island, which is, I mean, all of us. You, you know, even when we go back to Paris Island now, and and I've got to say, I'm I'm not. Sh- I I don't want to get in trouble here, but I I, I wonder sometimes whether we. It's time to change the way we do things at Paris Island. We can talk about that, you know, as we transition to um, we really, really need more and more creative, uh, critical thinkers. And Paris Island certainly doesn't help you do that, right? Um, but anyway, so you can imagine transitioning to, to that. But even as an officer, even as an officer in the U.S. military, uh, despite the fact, I, I, you know, in the Marine Corps, we, we like to think that we're 
we encourage uh, eccentricity and we encourage intellectual curiosity. I would argue, no, we don't. Not enough. Mm-hmm, we, mm-hmm. And, and certainly by uh, comparison with, uh, with my background in the UK, no, not at all. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I certainly, um, you know, I'll give you examples. I mean, I, I came in uh, probably with a, uh, a very kind of, um, you, you know, when we're talking about intervention overseas, we're talking about, I, there was always part of me that, that was kind of looking at it through the, uh, you, you know, Yankee imperialist lens <laughs> yeah, too, right? Sure, and and sure. now suddenly I'm wearing that uniform and doing these things. So I always, there was always an element where I had to justify things ethically to myself. I know that sounds strange, but it was a step I had to take. Whereas my fellow officers, I, having brought up, being brought up in this country, having been inculcated mm. from Day one, hey, the military is awesome. They defend yeah. our freedom, this and that. It's second nature. There's no thought in it. It right, doesn't right. mean I'm. It doesn't mean I'm eth- uh, ethically any better than them, uh, or any more morally well grounded. Probably less so in some cases. But nevertheless, it's it's it was just a very different perspective. Yeah, yeah. Um, always, but you know, I I think actually Woody commented on this, or maybe it was Bing West, but the Marine Corps. You know, having said all that, having said that the, the Marine Corps doesn't encourage eccentricity or uh, intellectual curiosity, I'm going to backtrack a little bit and say the Marine Corps tolerates eccentricity I, I, more so than the other services. Hmm. And uh, it does so on one condition, that you get the job done, right? Yeah, you accomplish right. the mission. If you do that, then, okay, it's okay if you're a little... A little different, yeah. yeah, a little strange. <laughs> and so I certainly, you know, I drove up that seam and, uh, and was very fortunate that I had a, a succession of guys I worked for um, who, who were very tolerant in, the, in that respect. Yeah. No, that's, that's a, really a fascinating um, perspective because, yeah. like, like you said, I, I think when we look at, um, especially we look at the joint force within the DOD, but then we look at, multinational forces we've been dealing we've been in that game you know for a few decades or a couple decades now there is this assumption that within the transatlantic uh uh organization we're all sort of the same yeah maybe our accent's a little different Uh, i i think things have converged i think two decades of fighting the same wars yeah have caused this uh, have caused the convergence of culture uh, with between the militaries, but uh, in, until nine eleven, uh, the different the kind of the career track of the average British Army or Royal Marine officer was quite was quite different as far as his experiences. So the Brits had a lot more operational experience in the nineties than we did. You know, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, they were, for instance, they were in Bosnia, Bosnia, um, in a in a semi you know quasi combat capacity mm-hmm. not not simply peacekeeping and of course northern ireland which yep. uh you know which continued throughout and then there were pop-up incidents such as sierra leone and things such as that at the same time that w- through a succession of governments after somalia our own government was avoiding military um in intervention mm. and so you had quite a wide divergence and then and then in 9-11 when we came together or rather in afghanistan or actually uh, in iraq 2003 yeah. there was this kind of supercilious attitude from the brits of hey yanks we've got this we know counterinsurgency <laughs> yeah. um, but in fairness u.s marine corps showed itself to be an extraordinarily adaptive organization uh it put in the most um 
volatile area of Iraq. I don't think anyone challenges that. Anbar province. Yeah. And uh, just told and, to fix, and, fix and, these guys. In yeah. Place. And and in yeah. in a very I think a way we can all you know I I am proud of. Um, learned and we learned some hard lessons we made a lot of mistakes and there's some you know there's some milestone mistakes like uh, haditha and various other things but but the point is that uh, individually battalion by battalion you had guys just trying to do the right thing learning quickly in the face of uh you know great you know, high danger high casualties um, and then paradoxically, I know you, you don't want to get in trouble with the Brits, but, you know, they go to Basra, which is a relatively benign area, and they're struggling. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. so it, my point here is not to vilify the, the Brits because they're an extraordinarily uh, professional organization. My point is simply that you, this, this sense of, oh, I need to learn is, is all important. Yeah. I need to adapt. And if you lose that, then, you, then everything goes south. And we're seeing that right now. As we start talking about transitioning to Absolutely. multi-domain operations, are we still going to do things the way we always did? Oh, hey, look, hey, we got to we got to conduct a breach. Let's put down a uh, smoke screen, bring artillery up, all right, start suppressing, uh, you know, and 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 uh, bring a bring the Miklik up. Uh, yeah, cue the know, script. Twenty-five, yeah, quarter of quarter of a century ago, tactics or. Have we learned that down at squad level now we need the ability to close the cold chain um, to include, you know, understanding how to use uh, ISR, tactical level ISR, how to un- understanding how to quickly use precision guided uh, weapons down at the squad level? No, we haven't got to that level yet. You know why? Because we are so caught up in ourselves about we're the combined arms service, this is how we do things, yeah. that we have not adjusted to the new term of combined arms. Did I get too much off track for you then? No, this is perfect. Oh, went right on track. Hey, actually. hey here's, a, yeah. here's another thing, though, talking about outside looking in. Here's the strange thing about retirement. So uh, I retired. You know, the weird thing is I feel kind of like I've been out of the Marine Corps the last 10 years because from 20, uh, 2012, I went to Marsoc. Uh, I took the regiment. And then the Siege of Sodaf. And then after the Siege of Sodaf, I went to Special Operations Command Central, where I was the chief of staff and the deputy commander. So my point is, I had this long period where I was kind of out of mainstream mm. Marine Corps. In mm-hmm. fact, a, a four-star uh, four star general happens to be former commandant. He's a, a terrific human being, great officer. But said to me at one point, Andy, when are you coming back to the Marine Corps? <laughs> you know, yeah. Not that he wanted me back to the Marine Corps, <laughs> but he was just curious. And it, it made me think, shit. Yeah, I'm. I, I haven't. Have been. Been, yeah. yeah. Um, but I so so in those positions, I started to to again feel even more of an outsider. Now I'm in the soft community, looking the Marine Corps. But but curious. But more and more. Um, and, and this isn't. You know, I, you guys didn't give me the script to read. But uh, what I the under the strongest undercurrent I felt honestly was pride. You know, and um, just the average Marine. Average Marine NCO, staff NCO, average Marine officer uh, v- w- just handled himself so well, I thought. And, and I'm not trying comparison with other services. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that every time I came into contact with that, with the service, I, I was uh, very proud. At the same time, I've got to tell you, um, there were aspects of the Marine Corps that I started to notice that were – I felt holding us back, and now I'm viewing it from outside. You sure. know, we can be very pig-headed about some things. We can be notoriously chest-beating about some things, uh, and it and it prevents us adapting. We've got to be wary of that. Yeah. Um, last thing I'm saying, I'll shut up. And, <laughs> Please and don't. So, we've got no. A lot so more then, to go. then I retire fully, right? And I get brought on. 
uh, it very. Uh, this is an awesome gig. I get brought on to uh, to to go out to Twenty Nine Palms and be a small group facilitator for the ground commanders course, and also to be a kind of a mentor. We call it subject matter experts, although I hesitate to call myself an expert about anything, for the MAGTAF warfighting exercise series. So the curious thing about that, now now I'm put, being pulled back into the womb, right? Mm-hmm. 29 palms of all places, you know, you're yeah. right through the gate. And you are definitely back in Mother Marine And I find myself, um, you know, lying in bed uh, early in the morning and hearing like squads and Marines running by chanting, thinking, who, who are these strange people? You know, it's <laughs> yes, just right. such a, everyone's so, but you know, the positive aspect of that is, it, you know, it, it, there's something comforting too. Even the short hair, the uniforms, um, the scrupulous uh, uh, politeness. We don't, I don't know, you don't notice that until you've been a civilian for a while and then you're among Marines again. Yeah, they're forced to be polite, but it's part of our, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> you can call it superficial, but it's, it's all part of our, our culture. And uh, yeah, again, you know, I, uh, the under the strongest un- undercurrent, I honestly, I, I do feel is pride. Very proud to be part of it. And I didn't, I, I didn't always realize how much I had to be proud of while I was there because every when you look around and everyone you see and talk to are Marines, you become institutionalized, and you don't have that frame of reference until mm-hmm. you leave until you leave the organization. Yeah, absolutely. I I I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, in my when I retired, I, I went back to school. It was in a very, you know, liberal uh, academic setting, and it sort of just lost sight of that. And then coming back here again, I was like, oh, yeah, I, I love this. I forgot how much I it's love comforting. this. It's comforting. Yeah, it's very comforting. It, it, and, and I think that a lot of the things, the things that you've talked about already, culture, um, intellectual curiosity, um, I think drives towards what we're – we were talking about here with uh, our amphibiosity piece, and that is when does uniformity, which is absolutely critical to an organization, start to become conformity, which is then the beginning of the downfall of the organization, is when you've got this myopic sort of mindset that everyone is conforming to, vice a uniformity that brings us all together and unifies us by culture, but then we still facilitate and encourage this level of intellectual curiosity. And I guess to your point, like I think that it's a great bumper sticker to say that we encourage initiative, intellectual curiosity, and it works in an academic setting. But for you being out in 29 Palms, do you see that sort of sterile environment where it's encouraged translate over into actual field exercises and are we training like you said even down to the squad level for our marines and our leaders to be intellectually curious and to ask questions about what is going on okay now i i would say not enough and and here's why i'm saying that all right and and this is you know i and and bear in mind i i don't it's very difficult for me to Honestly, it's very difficult of me to to criticize the Marine Corps because uh, it's you know it's kind of biting the the hand that fed you. I mean, we, we we've spent most of our adult lives in in the organization, so I I don't you know I don't I'm not one of these guys who rolls out and just and and uh, derives pleasure out of then throwing rocks. But on the other hand, you know if you love an organization, you want to make it better. And and you know part of the, part of this, I I'm I'm trying to trace root of the problem. And uh, um, the, the answer to your question is no. No, we do not. Um, we, we, 
we do not encourage I'm not sure it's so much initiative as again as intellectual curiosity and and adaptation. Okay, yeah, it's a little bit different than initiative. I yeah, think, adaptation. I think is a good word, yeah. I think uh, I think we are our guys. All our guys have a tremendous amount of initiative, but it's within certain parameters. Mm. Okay, and you might say, well, of course, because we're in the military. But here's where I'm heading on this: when 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 you when you trace, you know, okay, what is wrong now? Why are we why are we so slow now to adapt to the environment that we think we're going to have to go to in in a, we, I hate this term, but great power competition. But the bottom line is, you know, changing nature of warfare. Um, well, I I it's not it's not risk aversion. It's not lack of initiative. Honestly, I I think it it comes back again to intellect. <laughs> so it comes back to we are not we're not nurturing, encouraging. Um, th- that that sense of uh, creativity um, and intellectual curiosity, critical thinking, all of the above. Easy enough for me to say that. What do I mean by that? Well, think about how we select officers. All right. Yeah. We aside from a GPA and aside from uh, am I using the right terminology here? GCT. Do we still use that term? Yeah, GT score, GT. GT. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so I think it was like a 120 GT for yeah, an officer, yeah, right? Yeah. Which is which I had a waiver for. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> you know thank you. Yeah. At. Let's not come out and. <laughs> I was just going to say, which is barely uh, anyway. Um, but but those aren't those aren't tests of of creativity or intellectual curiosity or uh, intellect. Uh, why don't we? You know, where, where is our officer selection right at entry gateway? Now, don't get me wrong. I think we've got tremendous officers. I'm just saying that there are certain traits that we need to give greater encouragement to, right? So we can have dudes who are great leaders, but they are not yet adaptive. They're not adaptive. Um, and, and it begins there. If you start, at, you know, in, at entry point and then, um, you know, throughout – this is a talent management thing, but throughout an officer's career, you should give them plenty of opportunities to widen his horizon, or as General Van Riper used to say, cast your net wide, uh, and and go. To, you know, for professional military education, there is a very limited field, right, of places that you can go. Whereas now, Army, Air Force, I know the Marine Corps is doing PhD programs now too, but there should be many more of those. You know, fellowships with Department of State, with USAID. You know, uh, um, and and non non government organizations. Why not get our guys out there? That is what I'm talking about: education, right, mm-hmm, outside mm-hmm. the institution, so that they can be an outsider. Um, that that's that's part of it, right? Um, I think that our talent management could use some reworking. I think that we need to go to a 360 method of performance evaluation, because all of us who've been in the Marine Corps know. That peers and subordinates, by and large, are very fair judges of performance and reputation. And we all of us know that if you are determined to get ahead, you can fool your superiors. <laughs> you can deliver, right? But things suffer, like your unit suffers. Mm-hmm. Those around you suffer. Your subordinates suffer. Okay, I'm not just talking about toxic leadership, but I'm talking, too, about the guy who is perhaps not particularly talented. He's not a toxic leader, but he's not the smartest tool in the shed right. all right my point is the smart we only need the smartest tools in the shed that's who we need in this mm. environment no. we can't we can't be promoting dudes who aren't 
yeah. among the yeah, smartest he's dangerous. guys. He's dangerous. He's just not inspiring. He's not inspiring, exactly. Mm-hmm. But he gets ahead because he delivers, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, his peers spawn it. Yeah, the dude's like average. Well, uh, so that's why we. I think we need to go to 360 evaluation, all right? This is just, you know, you're asking me, hey, what do we need to do rather than me just talk vaguely about, well, you know, we need more of this and that. I'm just giving you one example. Sure. I think that's going to be a huge example. Now, the counter-argument is now you're going to get officers who pander to their subordinates. And I would say most Marines do not want an officer who panders to him. They want a, they want a dude who knows his stuff. And bottom line is they would rather he was an asshole and knew his – can I say asshole? Yeah. yeah. That was yeah. not on your list of yeah, words. You got it twice. All right. You got it yeah. twice now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, drop they would rather have – wouldn't you rather have a boss who was an asshole but knew his stuff, knew his shit, right, than a guy who is a, just trolling along trying to get to the next – and, you, you know, one of those guys who can never make a decision. You can never mm-hmm. push and make a decision. Mm-hmm. Those guys are death to work for. But they, a lot of them get ahead because they, they are carefully waiting for that one or two things they know their boss wants and they give him the ham sandwich that he has asked for mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and they go on. So 360 evaluation – um, it is one. I think we need to. Uh, I think we really do need to to figure out a way to to measure and continuously challenge intellect and assess intellect. And the guys who it's okay to tell an officer, "Hey, dude, you're fine as a major, but you're not smart enough to make lieutenant colonel." Right? <laughs> Seriously, because that's what we need are really smart guys. I mean, yeah. again, you want to know why I'm saying this? Because um, because as we're talking about preparing for uh, not just conflict, but competition right below the level of armed conflict, shaping, strategic reconnaissance shaping, and then all the way through the, the sort of small unit action that we're talking about in Indo-PACOM. We need guys yeah. who are intellectually acute, right? And we shouldn't allow these guys to promote themselves out of work too. For example, if you've got a really awesome company commander who's really pushing the limits and yeah. is really developing his Marines and is really honing his craft. But you're like, hey, man, your 18 months are done. Go yeah. be an OPSO, go be an XO, or go to school, but you're out of here. And the guy says, I love being a company commander. Can I just be a company commander for a little bit longer? Nope. Every, we got to get the, every, got more every, guys coming in. Every two to three years, you empty the bathtub. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. So there's another aspect of talent management. That is the way that we do uh, unit manning. Uh, organizational manning. Um, and, and I know, listen, I, I know it's easy for me to say this. I know there are, there are probably guys who work at Manpower right now going, geez, Melbourne, shut you know, up. shut the hell up. You have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. But my point is that the way we do things right now is it makes no sense. And especially now when I talk, there's no point being a learning adaptive organization if everyone who learns and adapts is gone in a few months. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we have this endless this kind of exercise cycle of people coming in, they learn hard lessons, and then they go their ways, and all those lessons dissipate, yeah, right? Unless you have and, a good turnover binder. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, so you're right. You, we've got to figure out a way to, to build and sustain institutional proficiency and knowledge, uh, a little more longevity in, in billets, um, and, and prevent that turbulence. Because with that turbulence, again, it's just like, you know, it's pulling the plug, right, yeah. and, and starting again. Yeah. And so I think all of these things are, uh, are, are interrelated. Uh, don't get me wrong. You know, I mean, I just so – I made my proviso up front. I mean, of course, I'm, I, I'm absolutely green, green, 
pro Marine Corps. These are comments, so I think, well, hey, we've, it, got to, we've, got to, we've got to learn to adapt. Um, and, and we need to ask the question, and, and, and I think it's important, and I think it leads into exactly, you know, our main theme for this series is, is that let's ask the question and let's get ahead of the scuttlebutt and let's start speaking truth to some of these things that Marines are talking about. And, and you know, one of them, obviously, is are we still an amphibious force? And from your outsider perspective, is that a question? That is, that is, that's <laughs> the question. <laughs> is I mean, from your outsider perspective, and especially why, you, with you why, why, homes. why do we care if we're an amphibious force? Because good, that's uh, an even better question. You know, I, I well, you see, I, I'm much better at asking good questions. So, <laughs> well, um, I, I'll say this: um, Colonel Woodbridge, I think, put it very well. Is is that? And, and again, we didn't necessarily have an answer, but this isn't necessarily a podcast for answers. But is we need to be expeditionary. Talking yep. about culture, we 100%. need to facilitate and enable. We need to be adaptive. We uh, all those adaptive things. expeditionary, not necessarily amphibious. But does it? Yeah, is right. amphibious critical to that piece? No, hundred percent not. Okay, all right. Says I mean, the guy who lives in Twenty Nine Palms. No, it, well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, so we, in in a sense, I mean, we've been amphibious in and in and out of our history, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and uh, our our you know our our most uh, Totemic, am I saying that word right? Uh, roots and amphibiosity, of course, date from. That's our next series, by the way. That, that totemic. You know, the yeah. Ellis, you know, and and uh, and the Second World War, right? But uh, but that was that was that story was not about amphibiosity. That story was about adaptation mm. and eccentricity, and that's why it's such a wonderful story. By the way, Ellis, uh, he and I can't remember who told me this story, but um, his his paint. He had a painting. Over there in what used the old MCU building, right? And um, you know, of course, Ellis was an alcoholic. You know, I hope none of his descendants are listening to this and will sue me. But he was, you know. But he was obviously he changed the course of history. It doesn't matter if he was alcoholic. Yeah, you know, yeah. he was amphibious, right? But my point was, he was adaptive. He understood what needed to be done, and the Marine Corps adapted, right? And so instead of instead of falling in love with this. Being amphibious, we we should again go back to being adaptive, and it's all important now. It just so happens that we probably need to be littoral. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's just because of the nature of changing demographic, nature of the conflict that we're facing. But that is that should never be central to our identity. Well, for yeah. someone who has commanded at the at the highest levels of strategic and operational and tactical we talk about specialized operators does part of being the joint force then does our amphibiosity is that the tool that we bring to the joint kit or is it again come back to our expeditionary culture is the thing that differentiates it it comes it 100 percent not Amphibiosity, it comes back to expeditionary culture. But we've got to be careful. We've got to make sure – we've got to give life to this if that's what we're saying, all right? Um, the, you know, again, and you're going to be tired of – certainly if you're not already tired of me saying adaptive, uh, that, that, is, that has to be core to our culture. And, and us being more adaptive, more expeditionary uh, than, you, you know, our counterparts uh, or uh, other, other services, that is 
that's our our identity. That's our, our you know claim to sustained longevity. Tree. Yeah. So is yeah. it more of like a uh, tool in our toolkit rather than like something we give ourselves like a face tattoo for amphibiosity? And activity. Uh, oh yeah, that's what you're saying. But I'm not even sure yeah. what amphibiosity means anymore because we're not. You know, amphibious assault is obsolete. Absolutely, you know, amphibious just, assault as we know it. Well, there's still five billion people living within thirty miles of the coast on this planet. Yeah, but so, we don't. Like, but amphibious. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I mean. Now, operating the littorals is not yeah. right. Is not the forceful obsolete, entry yeah. from the sea against yeah, the contested theater, theater level entry from ships to the shore is obsolete. Now, uh, just to play counterpoint, uh, and, and uh, again, just to, for the spur of the discu- discussion, we start talking doctrine. Now, obviously, when we were you were mentioning uh, initiative, the box with wind with with which in we accept initiative and we sometimes call it uh, adaptation still falls within the box of doctrine. Uh, MCDP one, and I'm just going to read this. Sorry. Uh, says uh, operating forces must be organized to provide forward deployed or rapidly deplo- deployable forces of conducting expedition operations in any environment. This means that in addition to maintaining their unique amphibious capability, the operating forces must maintain the capability to deploy by whatever means is appropriate to the situation. So when we read that, that last bit there seems like a bit of a caveat or it gives you that loophole. As someone who operated uh, in a joint – a commanded at the joint level with special operators doing special missions, are we still in this business? Well, I think we're getting – we're getting wrapped around the axle about how we how we get to the fight, right? Um, I think it's more important what we do when we get there. Okay. So, I if if it so happens that launching from the sea is the best way to get to the fight, yeah, we, of course we need to. If that's the most appropriate way, of course we we should sustain that capability. But uh, it, expeditionary means getting to the fight yeah. by any means, right? And it's actually. You know, that, that part of it uh, is we really need to think through what that means because how are we going to get to the fight when the theater is already hostile to mm-hmm. entry? You mm-hmm. know, I yeah. didn't word that very well. But, you know, no, if you're dealing, yeah, absolutely. I mean, dealing if, uh, with an adversary who is uh, denied large areas of, of that theater, how, how now do we Yeah, when, I mean, when we the weapons in? engagement zone – it reaches the, cut, yeah. the world. Reaches, yes. the, yeah. reaches yeah. all the way to San so, Diego. So maybe we're looking at you yeah. know some different means of infiltration. Uh, you know, I mean, they, and there's really no limits on this. Uh, I he, let me let me give you a couple of examples. All right. So I think we have to forget about. I I think that the line between what we call tier two special operations. Let's take Marsoc. All right. Uh, the, the line between the sort of things that MARSOC does and, the, and, and what means conventional Marine Corps does, that, that line has to become blurred mm. right, in this environment yeah. because, you, because we're all dealing with the same environment. The difficulty of getting in there, uh, we're, we're going to have to deal with kind of a, more of a small unit approach. Infiltration. It's a raider mindset. Yeah, um, and, and uh, everything, everything, you know, degraded communications, um, the ability to employ, deploy, employ sensors, um, long-range precision fires down at the squad level. Mm-hmm. You know, all mm-hmm. these now we think of being special operations 
uh, capabilities. But no, we, we have to take these on board. And it's not far-fetched. We don't need a ton of extra equipment. We just need, okay, wait for it, to be more adaptive. <laughs> All right, we've got, we've got the means to do this now. Yeah. We've got, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we are short. Yes, we are short, for instance, ISR uh, platforms. But that is not the reason why we are not good at employing sensors. The reason why we're not good, um, good at employing sensors is we have not adapted to that mindset of this is the fight now. It is, yeah. it, it, it's, you know, I mentioned earlier um, this old, uh, the old paradigm about closing with, you know, this is going to be blasphemy for the infantry guys, but closing with and destroying the enemy by fire and maneuver uh, is, is no longer grunts piling out of an Amtrak and assaulting the trench line after it has been prepped by mortars and artillery, right. you know. I, that, that is not it. Uh, close, closing, uh, closing with the enemy is closing the kill chain, yeah. which, may be, which may be 20, 30 kilometers away, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, using, using sensors and, and using, um, you know, uh, hopefully organic precision-guided weapons at the, org- at the squad level. Yeah. Um, those, that is, that, that's kind of the, that, that is, when I say that, I, you know, I always, I, I always, I remember General Van Rijp used to say, well, uh, the, you know, the, I, this isn't the way he talked, by the way, but the, na- <laughs> uh, he used to say either the nature of war has not changed, but the character has, uh, and anyway, any, we, we're at that point again, okay, yeah. so uh, there, there's a fundamental change in, in how we think about, how we do business. Yeah. And I think it's a, a full paradigm shift, right? I mean, based off of what you're saying is, is that even things like shaping operations, we need to get out of this mindset that those are going to last X number of days or X number of hours. It could be the majority of your operation right. is just shaping it so that when you yeah. do penetrate, it's quick and you're in and out, right? It, or or, or it, you could spend your whole career shaping yeah. in Indo, Indo-PACOM. All right. Um, what does shaping involve? Shaping involves a, a whole host of things, you know. And and the special operations community they hide behind this frame, not hide, but they use this phrase, overused phrase, operational preparation, of the environment. Right. That is shaping. Um, it, it's reconnaissance. It's counter reconnaissance, which you know we are struggling with right now, both at the, at, at the uh, at the tactical level. It is building source networks, human networks. Okay. That should be a, you know, these are conventional mindset things. Um, it is training proxy forces, partner forces. Uh, it, that's, these are all things, and, and access, gaining access, ensuring that we have access so when the balloon goes up, we're not, yeah. we're not having problems getting back in somewhere. Yeah. Uh, these are critical to, uh, to, to our success going ahead, but we don't focus enough on that. We think always right a bang. Yeah. I, as I said, that now our our main our main contribution to the joint force now on conce- you know the next decade two decades may be shaping it may be reconnaissance counter reconnaissance mm-hmm. and it may have nothing to do with storming across the beach yeah right I I, I want to definitely touch on something that you said because I think it, it it's a it's a great lead in um, to your article that uh, is hitting the Marine Corps Gazette. Um, but is is the idea of the proxy force being part of shaping operations? I think that is a is a critical mindset or a, a change in mindset that we need to start picking up. Because what we did for twenty years, that was in a lot of places, that was the main effort. Yeah, that wasn't phase one stuff. And so, getting out of this idea that uh, I have to deploy large 
company battalion task forces to do these things. Uh, I think is going to be a huge shift. But before I do that, though, I do want to mention, I want to touch on something that you just said uh, about access. And I know for, uh, you know, greasy Amtrackers such as myself, when I hear someone say, well, we need to maintain and ensure access, I go, Amtrak's Amphibiosity. Ding, ding. Oh, hold on. I'm just closing the loop now. That's right. You're a tracker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so what I've been saying, now, right? yeah, what I've been saying is... Uh, um, it's the equivalent of, uh, of criticizing transubstantiation to a Catholic, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. I've, had okay. to, I've had to hold back tears <laughs> All right. for quite a while now. Okay. So I'm glad I was able to get that off my chest. That's all right. You're retired now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so when, when people hear, well, we need to maintain access, um, the uh, amphibiosity diehards are going to say, well, that's why we need to make, that's why it's important that we stay amphibious. Yeah, I would. Yeah, that's that's taking the view though that uh, access means forcible access right at bang, right? Yeah. It means yeah. um, it, instead of doing all the prep work beforehand and use of proxy forces is is one way of doing it. Yeah, yeah good it, point. Because you you are getting others to do your work for you, and and to a you know assist your your units to get in. As I said, I mean it, it's yeah. not going to be. Uh, when we think of forcible entry, uh, it's probably not going to be mass amphibious assaults or parachute drops anymore. It's yeah. probably going to be small, uh, relatively small units, yeah. um, and and or even and unmanned vehicles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Use of unmanned, massive use of unmanned vehicles, Automation. loitering munitions. Um, to to get in and and disable the enemy's critical nodes and then uh, opening the way for you to go in. So, you know, all of this you might call shaping, call it what you will, but those now become the decisive actions. Nice. Okay, very good. Well, then on that note then, access uh, proxy forces, um, you know, you wrote an article for the Gazette um, titled, MARSOC leads the soft counter-ISIS campaign in Iraq. so let's talk about that a little bit. Certainly. Hey, uh, you know, up front, Woody did promise me that uh, you guys paid um, $50 a word. I just want to verify that that is. Uh, you, too many decimal, decimal points go. Okay. Yeah, about four to the left. <laughs> so I think we're about half, better. A, half a cent a That's word. That's better than my last article. Woody, Woody <laughs> charged me to get it published. <laughs> Where are you coming up with that half a cent? Because like... <laughs> you moved the decimal places to the left. I get that. I just don't know. He, he's he's worried, Nick's worried that I'm going to still ask for a paycheck yeah. at the end of this article. <laughs> Actually, um, I'm not worried about it. So what do you think it was then? Um, obviously, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you were the first Marine to command uh, CJ Soto. Yeah, I've got to be careful about this because there were two – there was a Jesota farm – gosh, I forget the name – in Africa. Uh, just uh, – yeah, it doesn't matter. Current, current it was matter. an extremely high-profile campaign. I mean, yeah, it, it's this... the first time. Let me put it this way: it is it is the first time in a in a high-profile campaign, like a real uh, task, a you know, a colonel, an O six level um, special operations task force uh, in in a uh, in in conflict. Yeah, you know, I so. mean, this was this was the enemy of the era. Uh, yeah, um, and so. What do you think it was, though, that had about MARSOC that you requested an additional MARSOC task force and not 
a ar- ar- army SF team or a SEAL oh, team. Oh, hey, yeah. I So, you know, at that stage, I was desperate enough. I would have taken <laughs> – I you know, so the, I'll, I'll get to your question, Vic, and you're 100% on target here. But they, let me say up front, so my first – I, my my first uh, concern was just getting another headquarters in there. Just to backtrack for a moment, for the sake of the listeners, um, uh, what Vic's talking about is when when we rolled into when I say we the uh, Marsoc led sieges sort of rolled into Iraq in 2016. Uh, one of the first things I did was was uh, was advocate for a second uh, special operations task force as a subordinate unit. Um, because this, it, it was a question of span of control, right? Iraq's, Iraq's a big place, yeah. but it wasn't just about that. It was about the nature of the fight. It was about the nature of our partners. Everything militated to have a second, uh, a second headquarters beneath me, um, number one. So I would have taken, you know, honestly, I would have taken a, a, a Boy Scout troop at that stage. But, <laughs> but I, was, I, I specifically wanted a, a MARSOC unit. Here's why. All right. Here's honestly what I think separates MARSOC from other soft components. Uh, one is full, of course, they're Marines. Okay, they, you know, and, and that's that's not just being blasé. We have an advantage in that we, you know, even Army SF um, brings guys in from a pretty wide pool from across conventional Army, right? But we, uh, when I say we, I'm sorry, we MARSOC. We bring guys in who have already proven themselves in the, in, in the Marine Corps. Um, so they already have that kind of level of maturity. They're sergeants or they're junior captains. Um, so that you know, that's thing one. We'd go the the process of assessment selection is very fair, but it's really good. So when I talk about we should be doing the same thing for officers, I'm not just shooting from the hip. We do it for Marines coming into MARSOC. We we test for emotional intelligence. We don't call it that necessarily. Uh, intellectual curiosity, creativity, all these things come out in the tests that they're given, either practical tests or, you know. So we get a really good crop of guys, all right? Um, The other thing is just because of some of the missionary work done by a number of leaders within MARSOC from the birth of the organization, we have full integration of what in the soft community are known as enablers, right? These are the guys who have not gone through the same assessment and selection as operators, although I hate that term, um, but nevertheless, you need them. Um, you know, they, the intel guys, uh, the dog handlers, EOD, um, the uh, uh, logistics guys, you, you name it, all right? Uh, but the way that MARSOC does that and integrates them down to team level, it, it means that that team really is it, – it's a it, – it's a, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word here without sounding just horribly cliche. It is a team. All right, so you will get situations in which the operators are supporting the intel dudes because they understand that is the mission in that particular case. Mm-hmm. Um, that type of integration we take for granted in MARSOC, but when you go to the other soft communities, they are very jealous of us, the mm. fact that we have that. That, that as much as, you, as could be possible, our guys at team level are interchangeable. They all have specific skill sets but as far as that, that sense of uh, being part of, of a single entity, that unit, that, uh, that, that, is, that is fully ingrained. Okay, the other piece is because we have these capabilities, we have the ability I can, to find, fix, finish, to close the kill chain, to do high-end intelligence collection uh, analysis dissemination at the lowest level. 
you know, at team level, right? And then if you're working with a partner nation force, you have the ability to find, fix, finish at, at company level, um, which, is, which is significant. A company, a company, a master company has a greater intelligence capability than a, like a conventional marine regiment. Right. That's now, now I, I think we're shifting. We need to shift in that way to make the conventional forces, you know, as we're looking, for instance, at the MLR at Third Marine, said that is kind of, you know, the model we need to be looking towards. Uh, we, we're not going to turn, I'm not trying to turn conventional Marine Corps into MARSOC. I'm saying, though, that there are lessons that MARSOC yeah. has learned that now we need to transfer across the organization. We shouldn't ignore it just because it's those guys over there. Yeah. And, and the same thing with, uh, you know, one of the frustrating, slightly frustrating things now is as, as we look at the Indo-PACOM piece and we look at that shaping piece and the left of bank stuff, there is great opportunity for conventional Marine Corps and MARSOC to work together. You know, brother yeah. Marines working together, same problem set, uh, but we need, those, we need to blur those lines more. Yeah. Um, Instead of, oh, hey, those guys are, you know, they fall under SOCOM or they fall under SOCPAC and we fall under MAR4PAC. Those days are, are gone. Yeah. We need to, to integrate fully. Well, yeah, ACMAC um, at our uh, luncheon talked about stand-in force. You have lunch with the ACMAC? I was, uh, very I, was serving, yeah, I was serving. Okay, very, uh, uh, very I was serving. Very neat way to. Yeah, I'm here all the time. Like, I, was yeah. iced tea, I was the iced tea guy and he didn't ask. Uh, so yeah. I was one in the back just listening. Um but uh, you know he had talked about stand-in forces, yeah. And when you hear that, you think raiders, or you think soft, right? And but we're talking at the conventional force yeah. level. Yeah. But how do you get them in there? Right. You know, how do you get them in there to stand in and not just lie down? Um, <laughs> right. And and that's you know that's stand in, and, not stand and, around. And, and and so again, that gets back to shaping. I think it gets back to the reconnaissance, counter reconnaissance fight that we need to be better at from the tactical to the strategic yeah. level. And uh, I and you know I know you keep hearing me come back to Twenty Nine Palms and MWX, uh, but that is that that is our laboratory yes. right now. You know you think about um, uh, in the '30s the places they used to practice. You know Puerto Rico. Uh, I know you're going to get listeners who are historians are going to say no, it wasn't Puerto Rico. But you know the various places they used to practice. <laughs> you know they used to experiment with the Higgins boat and everything else, yeah. right? Um, well, 29 Palms kind of is that place for us now with multi-domain operations. It's perhaps not getting the attention it deserves being 29 Palms, but, but that is it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where we need to really to, to start experimenting. We are experimenting with these concepts, yeah. how to get better at reconnaissance, counter-reconnaissance. What does counter-reconnaissance mean? It doesn't mean just looking at O.P. Crampton and saying, hey, can you see any dudes up there? <laughs> hey, uh, you, shall I call in artillery mission? You know, it means understanding, uh, you know, ha understanding how, to, how to disable the enemy's ability to sense, right? Mm -hmm. And that might mean in the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, it might mean uh, neutralizing them in, in other ways. It might be in the information yeah. um, environment. Uh, there's a multitude of ways, but having the ability, see what I'm saying about thinking creatively, creative, mm -hmm. creatively yeah. down at squad level. Yeah, especially uh, that uh, information thing, because everybody's got smartphones and everything. That's even right. Overseas, so like, how do you, how yeah. do you get around that? How do we get? Yeah. yeah. How do we get? Uh, oh, and you know, how do we get inside the commander's head? Um, yeah. And and alter his uh, his his decision calculus. Um, how do we create ambigu ambiguity, right? It's not just a question, are you going to come up with a deception plan? There's five parts to a deception plan. No, it's how do you constantly, as a thought, habit of thought and action, create ambiguity for the enemy, 
right? I know we you know, we spout about that all the time, but we typically don't integrate yeah. that well. How do we, um, you know, when I talk about, uh, and these are just examples of the way we, sh we should be thinking. So down at squad level, all right? I would argue this. Again, it's just sake of argument. I would argue that we are at, at a kind of a turning point in how we conduct, how we fight, uh, how we, in, similar to maybe 100 years ago, or, or, or at least the environment has changed. So 100 years ago, um, through developments of the preceding decades, machine gun, um, artillery, you know, accuracy of artillery, but mostly the machine gun, right? The, the defense became paramount. And people didn't. It took a while. For, it took the First World War yeah. for people to realize how much, how much stronger now the defensive position was than it than it used to be. And it took hundreds of thousands of lives. And then um, it, it it didn't necessarily take new technological advances, although the tank was developed. But the tank was improperly used to right. begin with. My point was, it took mindset. It took adaptability. And on, and and the, you know, for better or for worse, it was the Germans who led that with a. Uh, you know, 2017 when they started experimenting with stormtroop tactics. But I, I would argue we're at the same position right now, okay, uh, with development of um, uh, precision, long-distance precision-guided weapons, the uh, development of blue-collar ISR, right? So all of our adversaries are going to have drones, mm -hmm. and they're going to be mm -hmm. able to sense us from way out, and they're going to be able to hit us and kill us from way out. Um, that has changed, again, that has put strength back in the position of the defense. That doesn't mean all is lost. We have to, we've got to think of new gadgets. It just means we've got to, we've got to adapt our tactics accordingly yeah. to, close, to close that distance. It's no longer closing the last 200, 300 meters. It's closing the last 30, 30 kilometers, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. or, or even longer. You know, if you're talking operationally, it's talking closing the last 1,500 kilometers, yeah. right? But that is, that's the mindset we've got to, uh, and we, you know, we, we, last thing and I'll shut up. We, <laughs> we need to learn from, we need to forget our hubris and start looking at what is happening in the world right now in places like, uh, I'm going to butcher the, my pronunciation, Nabora Karabach, you know, 44-day uh, war. Uh, to, you know, the, the Azeris using Turkish and Israeli supply drones and loitering munitions, just carving, carving their way, bringing down an, a, a fairly sophisticated IAD system. Um, the uh, Armenians did have a, a pretty up-to-date IAD system. Um, they brought it down, they, they destroyed key nodes, and then they just destroyed uh, the Armenian mm -hmm. armored columns, right? Using blue-collar ISR yeah, yeah. from a distance. In Armenian infantry, there were very few infantry-on-infantry infantry engagements during that war. Why aren't we learning from that? Yeah. You know, um, the Turks did the same thing. You know, I hate to keep bringing up the Turks, but they, they are learning. They did the same thing supporting uh, Haftar in Libya. Uh, no, not supporting, opposing Haftar. So 27, uh, 20, I want to say 2018, 2019. Uh, notice how I hedge my bets on dates here. Um, <laughs> recently, so General Haftar attacked Tripoli. Uh, from from the east, he was a renegade general. You know, Libyan. Uh, there were two rival Libyan governments. General Haftar represented kind of, for one of a better word, the rebel government, supported by Russia, Egypt, UAE, and paradoxically France for some curious reason, right? And then you've got the, um, the I want to say the government of National Accord in Tripoli, uh, supported by the good guys, right? We say the plus Turkey. <laughs> Did I say that? No. Any, anyway, but the Turks supported uh, the the, the uh, what was 
widely accepted as being the legitimate government. General Hafter launches his forces on Tripoli. He is the clear favorite, right? His his militias are um, they're, they're, they're pretty formidable by the stand of Libyan militias. He's honed them well over the years, trained them. They're well equipped. They've got uh, the Wagner Group in full support. It looks like Tripoli is going to fall. The the um, GNA forces militia turned them around. Just you know. The, inflicted heavy casualties using what drones just using you know using drones and loitering munitions supplied by the turks right basic you know not so what i'm heading on this is we are so wedded to we need gucci gear Mm -hmm. we need high-end platforms we need we are really highly sophisticated but that is no longer the that's not what we should be looking at and this ties into the use of proxy forces that was the turks working with proxy forces Delivering a significant defeat, defeat not against not just some penny anti-rival militia, but an army backed by Russian. Yeah, some heavy hitters. Yeah, a, a, a Russian organization with close ties to the Kremlin, you know, and uh, with sophisticated weaponry. Why aren't we learning from that? Okay. Well, but you did. Um, one of the things that you happened you mentioned in your article was how um, you were able to. Use uh, cyber space as maneuver space um, by um, reaching out to dissenters of ISIS in Mosul via the internet. How how did that? What was the genesis of that? Um, yeah. So so all the good ideas in the siege of came from bottom up, and uh, you know I think that kind of gets back to the fact that. Yeah, you need to be a creative thinker, but a lot of the times you just need to recognize and applaud creative thinking from below. And so, you know, one thing that the counter-ISIS campaign, the counter-ISIS campaign was a success on many levels. Okay, low number of casualties, successful use of proxy forces, um, adaptation. Um, But, of course, the war, the fight is not over because the, you know, the, the, the conditions that fueled ISIS continue. Mm -hmm. But my point is that this was our first introduction to uh, many new aspects of modern warfare. And one was the the prominent role that the internet plays, right? Not just in the, you know, mostly in the information space. There's a reason why the Islamic State shut down internet and tried to control the internet in its occupied territories, because it realized what a powerful tool it was. And then from our part, we use the internet for a variety of reasons. And I'll keep on the right side of classified here, but uh, we use it as a as a promise. We used it, I would say, almost more than a more traditional collection means f- mm. uh, for intelligence. We got a lot of our battle damage assessment, um, uh, our sense of morale of you know our, uh, the opposition, the opposite, uh, Islamic State. You name it. We were getting it from uh, social media exploitation using Iraqis a lot of times um, because they could. Um, but to your point, too, uh, so there's the collection part, uh, then there's the influence part, right? And so, you know, local population, but then the adversary, too. Uh, local population, we, we had – what we realized was as, as we rolled in – to Iraq, the, the siege of deployed there. And, and bear in mind that uh, there was a conventional U.S. force there who did not have the same freedom of movement that we did, but nevertheless, they were there. It, it was, uh, at the time, 101st Airborne 
uh, and we were working by, with, and through Iraqi forces. One thing we realized was that we had to reassess what we were going to do there. <laughs> so we had done problem framing beforehand. We figured if we would go to, after the Islamic State Army, for want of a better word, you know, 20,000, 30,000 uh, fighters and, and just kill them, right? <laughs> because we had primacy. We had yeah. the weapons. We had air. Uh, but because the idea behind the Islamic State was so strong, uh, Muslims were still flocking to disaffected, uh, you know, youth were flocking to the black flag from all over the world, you know, most notably Europe, North Africa, coming through Turkey, Syria. So it didn't matter how fast we killed them, he was able to replenish his recruits faster than, than we could do so. So we had to reconfigure. And so, you know, going back to uh, her doctrine, I'm afraid, his center, his center of gravity was Mosul, right? So the purpose of special operations forces should always seek to have strategic effect. We had to support the operational fight, uh, our partners and the operational fight in the lower Euphrates Valley. We had to help defend Baghdad, but at the same time, we had to make him feel the pain at home, right? Mm -hmm. Go after his center of gravity. And, and the way to do that was, was partly by working with the population within Mosul to encourage them into acts of defiance against the Islamic State from within the city. Because the Islamic State, the Mosul had achieved almost mystical symbolism. Yeah. Uh, you remember, this, this was the place where Baghdadi had declared, uh, you know, the caliphate, caliphate in yeah. June of, uh, from the Al-Nuri Mosque in uh, June of uh, 2014. So we had to make, a, we had to make the Islamic State feel the pinch there. And there's another thing about this too. Baghdadi had had implicitly set up the Islamic State as being, well, not implicitly, it was a proto-state. The Islamic State, the name itself says it, right? Mm -hmm. So along with the state comes uh, obligations to the local population. However tyrannical you are, you have to provide for the local population. Yeah, yeah you know. The Taliban's running into that yeah, issue now. You, yeah, like, uh, and, and so the Islamic State was trying to do that, and uh, they were doing it pretty well. They're running electricity, they're issuing traffic tickets for Christ's sake. Um, <laughs> no way. Yeah. No um, way. You know, in between like uh, uh, drowning people in cages and, and crucifying people and throwing people off rooftops. Um, but they were doing enough. They were, they were being brutal enough that there was, of course, that was not enough. And then as, as their ability to deliver services went down and their brutality went up, we saw an opportunity. And that was and that was encouraging local population to start with small acts of defiance, you know, smashing media kiosks, which were that was the Islamic State's way of operating the information environment. Mm -hmm. Set up these information kiosks, and that's how the local population got then news of the world. Uh, but it was a little like Fox News; it wasn't really real news, <laughs> right? So, you know, being so, so little things like destroying that graffiti, which is like nothing, you know. Yeah. But that. That would send the Islamic State dudes apeshit. The fact that it, it would really worry them that something so was happening within the city. The yeah. Uh, so how do you do that? How do you reach out to the local population? Um, uh, cell phone towers were down, a lot, and a lot of it was on the internet. A lot of it was by FaceTime or Skype. Uh, Americans or or Iraqis talking to the the locals within the city. And, and building relationships and encouraging them to do these things, which is kind of, I think, interesting, very yeah. interesting. It's such an interesting juxtaposition as you've got, and it, what you see in the article, you got pictures of the Peshmerga forces. It's really, on appearances, seems to just be a hodgepodge. Yeah. But then you also have, 
you're working extensively within the cyber domain as well. And so I think, you know, to your point about intellectual curiosity and adaptation, it's like you've got to really be prepared to do just about all the things. And I know, you know, when I was coming up as a lieutenant, we talked about a three-block war. Then it turned into a four-block war as we realized that people were digging tunnels. Now you've got a fifth block, a sixth block. Yeah, I okay. I so I, you know, I and again, you know, this is kind of blasphemic. I, 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 I so the three block thing analogy doesn't work for me anymore. I, I again, <laughs> I just, we just need to go back and be, be freaking adaptive, and and here's an example to, you know, I think to what you're talking about. And this works whether we're working with our own forces or proxy forces. Okay, we've got to figure out, as I mentioned, how to do long distance sensing down at squad level yeah um and and how to deliver fires at uh, you know at at squad level but at the same time we need to think cross think and operate cross domain what does that mean that means in the information space that means on the internet that means signals intelligence it means thinking of uh, the electromagnetic spectrum as a weapon right jamming mm-hmm. jamming is a form of suppression all of these things we need to start employing as second nature down at juniors at, at down at squad level um but at the same time we've got to hone and develop those skills that maybe we have lost or have um atrophied along the way um reconnaissance basic patrolling reconnaissance because uh again the, those skills are are just as important as as they used to be so you see what i'm saying so yeah. it's a wide i don't think you know the block thing doesn't do it for me anymore I, I just you, you need you need guys who are uh, emotionally intelligent and adaptive down at that level. Yeah, absolutely. Well, sir, I really I appreciate you so much. Or Andy, I used the <laughs> S word again. Um, I we'll re- appreciate so much you being so generous with your time. I do have I I mean I'm like tying you to the chair here as I'm continuing to prattle on, but I, I do want to ask one more thing about your article. Um, you concluded your article with, uh, and I'll quote you here, the fundamentals that enable success in modern war are already rooted in our doctrinal publications. So what does that mean then for a need for directional shifts like Force Design 2030? And are we talking about these, the concept of uh, things being already rooted in doctrinal publications with a paradigm shift like 2030, are these operating on dis- different spheres or is it more like a, a Venn diagram where there's this gray area where the two have to overlap in order for us to be effective in the modern uh, battlefield? So here's, here's what I meant by that. So in our doctrinal publications, we talk about things like uh, mission type orders. We talk about in a, a you know, support initiative. We talk about friction. We talk about um, implicit communication, right? Did I already say implicit communication? No, that's no, a new okay. One. All right. So implicit communication, all those things, even more important now in in a environment of degraded uh, communication, mm-hmm. uh, where we we become targets. And again, all of those things uh, enable us not to. You know, follow a a uh, our, our doctrine is worded deliberately wide, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, as we saw in MCDP one. Yeah, yeah, it's it's wider. It's not like uh, necessarily. Uh, it's not like a, a 
a publication like the Airland Battle that says, hey, this is kind of the way you do war, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it does say this is how you do war, but it's more a mindset. It's a conceptual thing, right? And so that's what I mean by that is ingrained in that is the fact that we have to adapt and we have to um, – we we have to really operate like we say we operate yeah. because that's the only way we can in this new environment. Does that answer your question? It that? does. And so I, I guess I have one follow-up then. Do you, do you think then shifting the paradigm like Force Design 2030 does, is it facilitating that? Is it enabling that adaptation? Or are we just sort of – is it another veneer and we're not really getting to the root of the problem? No, I, I, think, I think you need, you know, you need a, an objective. You need a goal, right? The challenge then becomes making it alive, made it making it come alive for units, organizations, individuals who are who are rooted in the here and now, and and are 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 operating. You know, let's be honest. These are, you know, how can we blame people for struggling with this when we have brought them up to operate a certain way? We're coming out of two decades of counterinsurgency. Uh, you know, this is all all new stuff. So we. You know, we really have to focus on. We can take you know twenty thirty, but we've got to we've got to lay down milestones and markers, enablers to to uh, enable to enable us to get there from here. And and but the the important thing that allows us to do that is the mindset. This isn't just you know me just spouting propaganda. It, and the mindset is rooted in our doctrine. Mm. We just need to. We really need to to uh, take it on board. And, and the only way we can do that, honestly, is to reward behavior that pursues, that, that, that uh, embodies that mindset and discourage, you know, I'm trying to avoid saying punish, um, yeah, right. discourage that behavior that, that does not. Until yeah. that happens, you know, we, we're just going to continue right. to, and it to wallow. the lowest levels, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, thank you so much. This has been amazing. Yep. Hey, guys, got anything? Stuff comes up as it goes, and it just kind of gets answered as we're yeah, yeah, yeah. As that, thinking that, about that's it. That's the thing. So. I got all this stuff written down, yeah. and, and he's answering it as we were talking. Well, so. you know, for all of our listeners, please go check out When the Tempest Gathers. Um, check out the Marine Corps Gazette. MARSOC leads the soft counter ISIS campaign in Iraq. And these are all um, extremely um, – the themes in here are, go well beyond memoir, and they go well beyond just an account of a, here, I, here I was, there I was, there we were. Um, I think that uh, there's a lot of lessons learned um, across the spectrum of the human experience. So, sir, thank you so much. Or, yeah. Andy, thank you so much for being here. <laughs> I really, really appreciate it. This has been awesome. Hey, fellas, it's been a, it's been a great pleasure for me, too. All right. It's been great thank having you. you. This thank has not you. been – there's a big ad for Marsoc in every issue of every each magazine. This is not, not related to that at all. <laughs> <laughs> so – Let's throw that disclaimer I'll, out there. I'll pick up my check on the way out. So, <laughs> yeah. Along right. with my check Cha-ching. for the article. Yeah. yeah, it's just the free copy of the magazine over there on the on the shelf. In the bottle of water. We'll get your bottle of water. <laughs> That's awesome. So oh, that'll cover the, uh, what was it, half a cent a word you were promising them earlier? That's right. All right. So, all right. Still pretty good. Half a cent a word. That's yeah. like 200 bucks. Half a cent a word? No, I guess that won't cover it then. Yeah. You need, a, yeah, I need to. You need to put math. another decimal yeah, in there. Work the, work the math out. <laughs> All right. Thanks. All right, Phyllis. Thanks. Was that? Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am Nick Wilson. That is Major Vic Rubel, U.S. Marine Corps retired. 
We have also heard the voices of or contributions from William Truding or Nancy Lichman, editors of Gazette and Leatherneck magazines, respectively. Opinions expressed in Scottlebutt are just that, opinions, and do not represent any official stance of the MCA.